Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. What a week. We've made it through to the end, just about. So has the Prime Minister, just about. So what does Boris Johnson need to do to take advantage of his vote of confidence victory? What can he do to bring his party back on side? We'll weigh up his options and try to make sense of the mood of his party. And if he's looking for a way to unify that divided party, is new legislation on the ever-controversial Northern Irish Protocol really the way to do it? We're going to look ahead to the changes that may be coming down the track. Joining me to discuss all that is an IFG duo who've been watching events unfold throughout the week. That's Emma Norris and Tim Durrant. Hi, both. Hi, Bronwyn. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to be here. Great to have you. And I'm really pleased as well that we're joined today by someone who understands the collective mind of the Conservative Party better than most, and that's the Spectator's deputy political editor, Katie Balls. Hi, Katie. Quite some week. Indeed. Thanks for having me. Very, very good to have you here. Well, let's start with a fallout from Monday's vote. Katie, we're nearly at the end of this week. Has Johnson survived? Well, he's still Prime Minister, and I don't think there is a sense that he is about to be moved from that position. Um, But I think he is in a weaker position than he was a week ago, um, and that is through the confidence vote. Um, Now, technically, Boris Johnson is now safe for 12 months from challenge. However, rules can be changed quickly. And I think the margin by which he won that vote, which I'm slightly putting in inverted commas, because I think it's quite hard for any leader to really win a confidence vote if, if it is triggered in the first place. It suggests problems, not strength. And But the fact he had 148 rebels, I think, took um, most of his team by surprise. Um, and it's worse, for example, than what Theresa May uh, had in her confidence vote. And she left, you know, ribbon six months after that or, or announced that she was leaving. Um, now, there are clearly differences between Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Theresa May had a hung parliament and had a, a very difficult task with Brexit, which she could not unite her party around. So her position was more perilous. But I just think there is a sense that uh, no one seems quite sure really if Boris Johnson can be the exception to the rule when it comes to prime ministers bouncing back from confidence votes. It tends not to happen. And I think the jury is very much out. It's a really interesting point you make because people have spent a lot of time this week talking about those historical comparisons, whether it's Theresa May or John Major or indeed Margaret Thatcher, um, and whether or not history is going to tell us something about this. But this is in a way a new circumstance, isn't it? And Johnson faces a lot of challenges in the next few months. Yes, and it's unique for, for a few reasons. But I think probably the most striking is the fact that Boris Johnson, I think this probably the thing we can be most certain about, if we can be certain about anything, is Boris Johnson is not going to resign. And as soon as you take that fact in, it changes the picture. I think if it was a different politician after receiving uh, the margins they did in their vote, there would have been some talk saying, oh, will they decide to do, to do you know, uh, make the decision themselves to end the pain? But no one was talking about that because Boris Johnson has been very clear he would have to be dragged kicking and screaming out of Downing Street. I think at one point he said it would have to be a panzer division that came, came and got him. And therefore, it makes it very painful for MPs to oust him from office. And it means that when we're looking ahead uh, to potential flashpoints, there are a few ways that you could see uh, could act as a trigger for the 1922 committee to change the rules. It is completely possible they would change the rules so they could challenge him again. But you also have to combine that with a prime minister who might do anything to try and stop them from happening, such as you know, his allies threatening that he could call an early election. I'm a little bit sceptical of the early election talk just because by all the current polling, it would suggest that Boris Johnson himself would lose his seat. 
But I think if we're looking at trigger points, clearly the by-elections later this month, but actually speaking to Tory MPs, I think the Privileges Committee investigation is perhaps more perilous for Boris Johnson, because in a way it's already been priced in, Boris Johnson will probably lose both those by-elections. And with the Privileges Committee, you could end up in a situation where there is a vote in the Commons, depending on what they find. And he already has 40% of his party against him who could vote with um, opposition MPs. Emma, you've been writing for us this week that Johnson has a window, a tiny one, to turn things around, really? Turning things around will be really difficult. The next year, two years are going to be incredibly difficult for the Conservative Party and for the country. I think really whatever Johnson does and whoever the Prime Minister is, and there's definitely a sense that his authority is ebbing. We've seen you know ministers starting to comment outside their policy areas this week and perhaps feeling a bit more empowered to do so. Javid um, was calling for the Prime Minister to do more on tax cuts yesterday. But despite that kind of grim outlook... As Katie said, the reality at the moment is Johnson is still prime minister. He's got little room for manoeuvre. He's likely to struggle to get things through the House. You know, trying to appease one set of opponents with one set of new policy ideas is likely to antagonise another set. My take is that the far better route, and in some way just the only route that's likely to yield any real change for Johnson, is for him to accept the situation that he's in, accept the limited space that he has, cut out the divisive policies, cut out the meaningless slogans, and actually focus on delivering in a few key areas where he can actually show progress, and where the majority of his party wants to see action and things like tackling the cost of living crisis you know actually putting some meat on the bones of the leveling up agenda I think just putting a bit more energy into delivery and a bit less into campaigning might actually change the picture for him. I want to come on to some of that substance in in a moment but Tim you look at the cabinet and ministers for us in a lot of detail there's been rumours of a a reshuffle. Uh, we had Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, on our uh, panel talking about serious health things, but throwing in, oh, Johnson's, he alleges, offering quasi Quatang's job all over, all over uh, the House of Commons ahead of the, the vote. What about a reshuffle? Would that be smart? It doesn't seem smart to me. I think there's two two aspects, right? So one is, what what does it do politically? And as as Katie said, you know, he's obviously weakened by the fact that this vote took place at all and by the fact that the margin was quite what it was. So politically, does he want to annoy the people who are loyal to him? Does he want to try and reward people who he thinks may have been loyal to him? Does he want to get rid of people who weren't loyal to him? It's very difficult to see any kind of positives in moving people around on the political front right now. But also to going to Emma's point, there's a question about if he actually wants to get on and deliver and make things happen, then don't move ministers around because it takes some time to get up to speed on the new job. It takes some time to work out what their predecessors were doing. If you actually want, you know, Michael Gove to build more houses or Quasi Kwarteng to sort out the um, people's energy bills, then they need to, it needs to be those people because they know the policy. They've been working on it for, for months now and they have to be the ones in charge of making making those delivery changes happen. Exactly. And that's even the case for junior ministers. You know, the temptation can be, oh, we'll leave the big beasts in place, but we'll shuffle, you know, the decks around at a junior level. But actually, when it comes to delivery and implementing policies, in some ways, junior ministers are even more important than secretaries of state. They're often doing, you know, the kind of grunt work in, in making this stuff happen. It's a point we make a lot at the IFG, but you keep people in place. Amazing that governments don't see the luminous truth of this um, <laughs> more, more, more often. Katie, I want to get, get into some of the detail, that uh, some of the substance of policy that Emma was um, exhorting the government to now tackle. And you were tweeting yesterday that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, is resisting tax cuts. Can you just take us into that dilemma? 
Yeah, so I think we've seen, as has happened a few times this year, uh, but when the Prime Minister is in a weak position, uh, you suddenly get a lot of demands. And clearly one is always a reshuffle because one of the ways you buy people on side is by making them think that, you know, they're going to be the next big thing uh, or very least keep their job. Um, But I think what's been interesting after the confidence vote is where there's probably been the most consensus from across the party was the need for tax cuts. So you had Damien Green uh, from the One Nation wing on one side talking about how tax cuts were the best way to help the cost of living. And then you also had figures such as Steve Baker. And we know also when Boris Johnson was initially hit by Partygate earlier this year, one of the big demands was, you know, scrap the national insurance hike. It didn't happen. Now, when the Chancellor addressed uh, MPs yesterday at a meeting of the 22 committee, Richard Sinek did not really mince his words. He said that he did want to uh, cut taxes, suggested that he had, but ultimately they would have to wait because fiscal responsibility is as important as cutting taxes. And therefore the the best uh, they're going to get, and I'm speaking to MPs who are there, uh, is business tax cuts in the autumn budget. And then after that, you could get personal tax cuts. Um, So that is not that is Boris Johnson and the Chancellor for now, not bending to those demands, but trying to say, stick with us and we'll eventually get there. But it's a really difficult economic picture, isn't it? We've had the OECD uh, this this week projecting that the UK will grow more slowly than any other major economy. We've got very high inflation. We've got a lot of comment out there about how Brexit is causing the weakness of uh, of sterling or contributing to that and the ongoing difficulties that companies are finding exporting to the EU. This is a very difficult economic slate of, of problems, isn't it? Yeah, com- completely. And this is why I think one of the issues when you're trying to think, well, how much trouble is Boris Johnson really in at this point? Uh, I mean, it's the fact that there's only really gloomy news on the horizon. And as you say, the cost of living sense it, it, it is going to get worse. I think also the view of the Chancellor is effectively that, um, you know, where you do mass tax cuts now, which weren't uh, fully funded, you have a situation where potentially that would mean, um, you know, that you're fueling inflation, um, which was one of the points they're making. But yet you have figures in number 10 who say, you know, growth, 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 and then figures in the Treasury saying, wait a minute, we need to join this all together. And I think one of the big points of unease, actually, when you speak to Tory MPs, because Partygate is clearly the trigger to this confidence vote and questions about Boris Johnson. But there are lots of other factors playing a role. And I do think there is a sense that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister don't really, they're not united enough to the point that when you put them together, you almost get an economic policy that pleases very few in the party. And I've had some people say, well, it'd be fine if it was just Rishi, it'd be fine if it was just Boris Johnson, but together we're ending up with this tax and spend. Hmm. And you end up then with I mean, really very difficult choices for the government, which is, is as you describe, is, is very difficult for any government to make make coherently. And this one is not at this point achieving. There's not much money all round for the government to spend on things it might want to. This week, we actually had an extraordinary comment from Sajid Javid, Health Secretary, complaining that the NHS is a blockbuster health system in the age of Netflix. He said that just as I was interviewing, we're streeting the Shadow Health Secretary here at the IFG. And here's what Streeting had to say in response. I think it's slightly absurd that, you know, 12 years into a government, um, we have government ministers who kind of talk in the biggest generalities without kind of real plans to really sort of deliver anything. I mean, I mean, the number of reviews that are underway at the moment, which then seem to hit the shelf as soon as they're published. I mean, I mean we just talked about... Um, you know, primary care. I mean, we went from... I think it went from being a sort of a review to an update to a stock... I mean, you know, the the stock... I mean, 
what, what are we, what are you, why are you doing a primary care stock take when you're 12 years into government and the system's in crisis? Where's your primary care delivery? Not even answer, where's the primary care delivery? Emma, what did you make of that Javid comment? I think it's just another example of making, well, look, Javid was telling the cabinet that the NHS is a blockbuster system, an old system in the age of, you know, a new system, Netflix. The prime minister spokesman then completely kind of garbled the comment and told uh, journalists that Johnson wanted to turn the NHS into a blockbuster system in the age of Netflix. So, you know, he lost the point of the metaphor, was unable to explain what on earth they meant by this. I think it's just another example, isn't it, of Johnson making these kind of slightly vague aspirational policy pledges that then fade into not very much. And I think just again makes the point that Johnson's idea of what delivery actually means seems to just be kind of quite grand, ill-defined visions with not much beneath them. And I think we're seeing that again uh, today. The speech on housing is about to happen you know, it's another reset, the kind of pledges around um, benefits to BRICS. What does that really mean? Is it a well thought out policy and mortgage lenders on board? Uh, you know, do people on benefits have the kind of deposit that they need to get a mortgage? S- so often the kind of the big policy ideas just aren't that well thought through or don't have that much beneath them. What struck me about what Streeting said, though, was that he didn't have a lot to say either on how Labour would pay for the health service. He was very much on the front foot on the politics. I was saying to him as we were going into the uh, um, the, the seminar room for the um, the live event, um, are you prepared to talk about the confidence vote and stuff? Shouldn't have asked. That was very much what he wanted to talk about and very, very com- combative sort of party politics. A lot to say on the health service and jobs and recruitment and so on, and an aspiration for you know raising its standards by without more money is the implication by doing more with technology. But he didn't have a lot to say on how Labour would pay for it or beyond saying, look, we need to work that out. And while in one sense, that is a, a fair response on from all kinds of uh, opposition figures. On the other hand, it is so much the crucial one about the health service, given the cost, the gigantic figures, that I did feel he left that dangling. Absolutely. And I think that just plays to one of the big challenges for Labour. I mean, Labour, despite everything that has happened, despite the state of the economy, uh, the Conservatives, you know, consistently poll the head of Labour when it comes to, you know, the safety of the economy. And so I think Labour are really hesitant about committing to spending, talking about giving the NHS a pay rise. Anything that involves spending money is a really difficult area for them. And I think, you know, one that it's really unlikely we're going to hear a lot on um, as we as we get closer and closer to an election. I think what's quite interesting in terms of the politics of this is we know the national insurance hike has been unpopular in many ways, that Labour have really gone an attack on it, saying that they wouldn't do it. And also that there's plenty of Tory MPs who agree with Labour politicians on this and didn't want it to happen, many of whom are in Cabinet. But if you actually speak to some of you know, some of the senior figures in government who obviously decided to keep going with this... They argued that by the time of the next election, it could actually really turn to their advantage because you could end up in a debate, uh, you know, when the leaders debates and uh, Labour will try and say, oh, the Tories uh, are not funding the NHS as they should do. And then they can reply by saying, well, how would you have done this? Because you didn't want to go for the national insurance hike. And they think they can start to say, well, we made the difficult decisions so we could fund the NHS. You've just spoken about a windfall tax. Now, the fact that we've even done that is not the type of sums of money that are going to work for this. So, so I think politically, actually, the Tories do think that this policy will age better than it did when it first arrived. Now, obviously, we need to take the tax burden and so forth to account, but I just think it does point to that issue for Labour when it comes to um, funding. Really interesting point. And Tim, how do you think Jeremy Hunt's uh, record as health secretary 
is working for him. He hasn't been shy about his ambitions. He came out very clearly uh, this week to say that um, he, he wasn't going to support Boris Johnson. He obviously stood against Boris Johnson and, and uh, for leader of the party and didn't, didn't get there. But then he got this incredible attack from Nadine Doris saying, uh, look at your record on health, um, kind of blue one blue attack, as, as I said, blaming him for some of the lack of preparation of the pandemic. How's it, how's it all coming together for him? It was incredible, wasn't it? As you say, on the day that a Conservative Prime Minister is facing a confidence vote, one of his closest cabinet supporters is attacking his his rival and former a former cabinet colleague of, of Johnson. I think it's fair to say Hunt, I think, has had a fairly good pandemic. People, you know, his his health select committee, which he's chair of, did a lot of good work looking at how the government was responding. He obviously, you know, as a former health secretary, knew how the NHS worked, knew how the system worked and, and was able to scrutinise it and, and call for improvements there. So I think he has kept his profile high while also doing sort of detailed, thoughtful work um, over the last couple of years. In terms of, I mean, in terms of what the party thinks, there's been a lot of uh, a lot written about the fact that this Conservative Party is a very large, very broad coalition, isn't it? And and Johnson is able to at least, if not unite it in the way that he once was, at least kind of keep it together. Now, I obviously, you know, Katie knows a lot more about the the inner tribes of the Conservative Party than I do, but I think the idea that Jeremy Hunt would be able to do anything similar to to Johnson in terms of uniting the 2019 Red Wallers with the Southern Shire Tories and the sort of um, the you know the commuter belt Tories as well, I, he's not the same kind of politician at all, is he? And and even if there is another vote and Johnson is removed, it's a long, hard road to to seeing Hunt or or indeed anyone in particular coming out the other end as the next leader. There's particular anxiety, or we could go further, just opposition uh, amongst the red wall intake of MPs towards the idea of someone like Jeremy Hunt taking over. I think they think that he would not hold the red wall and would actually be almost a step back to uh, to the Cameron era. But then I think it just points to a more general issue, which is just there's clearly a lot of discontent against Boris Johnson right now. But if you get to the point where there is a leadership election, it just becomes very unpredictable and there's no candidate that really ticks all those boxes. I do think Jeremy Hunt, though, um, there is a sense that he would turn off parts of the new coalition. Also, his record on the NHS could be could be weaponized against him. That's really interesting. Um, I was talking um, part of the media this, this week about whether you get these big figures like Boris Johnson precisely because it is so hard to unite these old parties, which do represent big coalitions within them, um, uh, and those coalitions getting more difficult to stitch together, and you get these these sort of larger-than-life characters. Can we descend, if I can put it that way, to just one technical point that Katie mentioned right at the beginning? What happens about a future con- confidence vote, about the, the 1922 committee that is in charge of these things? And its members are about to change, aren't they? Yes, they are about to change. So you'll be having, uh, you know, new members and with the 22, I mean, they're really supposed to be the voice of the backbenchers. They don't represent government. And I think in the past, Graham Brady, for example, the chair of the 1922, there have been more pro-government candidates, but he's managed to hold that chairmanship. Um, so you would, I think you would imagine it will still, that it has the potential to change things. But I, I think generally speaking, if you look at the numbers against Boris Johnson in that confidence vote, and if we presume, clearly, I would imagine some in the payroll voted against Boris Johnson, but probably the vast majority will be those backbenchers. So we know that a huge chunk of the backbench are against Boris Johnson. In terms of shaking up the 22 committee, it might not quite have that effect. I think what is 
it you know it could be similar to what it is now in terms of the the mood in it. I think what's interesting in terms of the rules is I've spoken to plenty of Tory MPs who voted against Boris Johnson in that confidence vote, but they are disinclined to look as though they are just you know having a kangaroo court or changing the rules at a whim. Because actually, one of the big criticisms amongst many of the Tory MPs who are currently opposed to Boris Johnson's leadership is his disregard for the rules as they see it, and they think that he does not you know value institutions in the way that they think it can conservative should. So therefore, this idea that you would suddenly change the rules in three weeks time because you don't like the by-election results, I think actually has a very um, minority view. That's a, really, that's a really interesting point. So while, I mean, would you say it's fair to say that if a majority of his MPs came to want him out, they could find a way, but you're also saying actually that they're disinclined to construct that casually? Exactly. I think if a majority turn against him, then I think that they will find a way to ask Boris Johnson. And they're not that far off it, of course, but, you know, things can things can always change. But I think the grounds for that, I don't think this would be, of course, people say it can be done in an afternoon. Sure. There's more a sense that if you um, something like the Privileges Committee, if you end up having a confidence vote, um, you know, I think it would have to be something quite substantial rather than the fact that we don't like him and he's still rubbish one month on and um, to really get people to get around it for those reasons. And also you can't completely rule out, um, you know, local elections next year as a trigger as well. I think this could still go on for some time. It's just can he actually turn around the direction of travel? Because the direction of travel right now is, I think, against the Prime Minister. In the middle of all this, or in the past week, Johnson changed the ministerial code, didn't he? Mm. And you've been arguing that this isn't quite what a lot of um, commentators made of it. The code was overdue a change. The Prime Minister had promised an updated code over a year ago now. One of the things that he did was uh, make explicit that there is now a range of sanctions available for ministers who are found to have broken the code. So it could be a fine, they could have to make an apology to the Commons or, or, or something else. And what this has done is basically make explicit what was always the case. So previously, the code only had one sanction and that was ex- that was written explicitly into the code. And that was if a minister is found to have knowingly misled Parliament, then they will have to and they will be expected to resign. And that is still there. So all this extra clarity has done is, is clarify things. It's just made explicit what was already the case. But a lot of people have got very het up. The accusation, a lot of commentators and many, many on Twitter saying this is entirely self-serving. You're saying that's wrong. I don't think it is. I mean, it, you know, it is still written in the code that if a minister is found to have knowingly misled parliament, they are expected to resign. And obviously, the PM is under investigation for knowingly misleading parliament. So if the Privileges Committee finds that he did so, it will be an interesting question as to whether or not he does resign and that will come down to political pressure. But that expectation is still there. So it's not it's not self-serving at all. What I think the update last week to the code did do is it, it missed an opportunity to to be a proper refresh of the code. You know, it's tweaks around the edges. There's a whole host of other re- recommendations that have been, ma- been made about how the code could be changed from us, from the Committee on Standards in Public Life, various other organisations to really make the code a kind of a proper standard by which standards can be judged and build trust in them. And I think the PM missed an opportunity there. And Emma, just to wrap all this up for us, what about Labour? Um, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, made during all this uh, heat on the Prime Minister, this this very bold declaration that he would resign if the Durham police issued him with a fine uh, for the famous curry party. Where do you think he is in all this? 
Well, I think we're still waiting to see, aren't we? I mean, we haven't heard from uh, from the Durham police yet um, whether or not he's going to be issued with a fine. I think um, you know it, it looks like it's unlikely, but not impossible. I think, you know, assuming that he doesn't receive a fine, um, he gets the best of both worlds. He stays in office, but um, gets to claim that he would have uh, he would have resigned um, had had they issued him with a fine, um, attempting to you know gain the the moral high ground from Johnson. I think the real test for Starmer now is, you know, Johnson is in many ways at the weakest he has been so far. What can Starmer do with that? You know, there are two by elections coming up at the moment in Wakefield. Labour are about twenty points clear of the Conservatives really showing they can hammer home that victory is going to be a, a really important test of his leadership. I think, you know, in, in many ways, a far more important test than um, than the, the Durham police situation. Let's turn to a really specific piece of legislation that Johnson may choose to bring, and that's the bill designed to override parts of the famous Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, it's become famous um, in the past couple of years. Here's our resident protocol expert, senior researcher Jess Sargent. Hi, Jess. Hi, Roman. Great. You're speaking to us from, I think, a, a back cafe in the Premier Inn in Edinburgh. Is that right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> Sorry Thank for you. any background noise. <laughs> Thank you. Just tell us, what is the bill likely to contain and what does the government hope it's going to do? So we don't know exactly the detail of the bill yet, but what we're expecting is that it will give ministers the power to override parts of the protocol and implement their own scheme for trade going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And we're expecting that what that will do is remove checks and controls on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland for goods that are staying there. And it will also have this dual regulatory regime, which will allow goods to comply with either EU or NI standards to continue to be sold in in Northern Ireland. Now, it's not clear exactly how detailed this bill is going to be. I think there's still some technical arrangements to be worked out, and I think that is going to be one of the EU's criticisms when it comes out. It's not clear whether this is intended to actually be implemented, whether it's a tool to influence negotiations to try and get the EU to change its mandate, which is what the UK said is necessary to make progress on this issue. The other aspect, of course, is also the DUP's continued refusal to go back into government in Northern Ireland. And I think the UK government will certainly be arguing that this bill is necessary to restore power sharing. Does the bill break international law? So this is going to be one of the big questions, I think, when we see the bill. Liz Truss has said that it will not break international law, that the Attorney General has provided legal advice um, that says that because the protocol is essentially, as the as they will argue, a threat to the Good Friday Agreement, because there is no Northern Ireland Executive and no North-South Ministerial Council, then they are justified in overriding it. Now, we've already heard some kind of leaked opinions of lawyers within government who are sceptical of this legal argument. But I think that's going to be one of the the big issues if and when the bill is introduced. Mm. And, and do you expect a big, a big di- dispute with the EU over this? Certainly, I think um, we've seen already um, the EU warning quite strongly against this action and saying that they will not renegotiate the protocol. And we've also heard quite strong words from member states. I think the UK were perhaps ex- hoping or expecting that EU unity might break on this somewhat. They might get some sympathy from member states like Poland, and that doesn't seem to be happening. Um, the EU has a lot of legal tools at its disposal that it could use to retaliate against this unilateral action. The most extreme of those being suspending parts of the trading cooperation agreements 
so potentially introducing tariffs. I don't think it will take that action until the bill is actually on the statute books, but certainly we expect them to reiterate that um, as an option that they have. Hmm. Well, Kiki, I mean, this is divisive stuff endlessly, it's, it seems, but as Jess is describing, potentially a trade war with the EU at the end of it. Are you surprised the government's going ahead with this? Not particularly. I think it's quite clear it divides the Tory party. But I think we've seen at this current point that there's very few things Boris Johnson can do that unites his entire party. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, I remember writing quite earlier this year, quite soon after um, some of the initial party gate pressure on Boris Johnson and, and before Ukraine, that the chances of Boris Johnson doing something such as triggering Article 16 or you know taking a new approach on the protocol had gone up because of political pressure from the right of his party. Because when they come, uh, MEs come with their list of demands, yes, tax cuts is one of them, but particularly on the right of the party, it's been actually the UK government needs to do something on this. And therefore, I don't think, I think the fact that pressure is growing and this week you've had, you know, when we haven't seen the bill yet because Boris Johnson has been in all these meetings because Brexiteers in the party are trying to put pressure on him to adopt a tougher stance than the one they even announced. Now, I think it highlights, however, just the fact that if, if Boris Johnson were to leave office, um, you end up in a situation where I don't think, where, where these things all become open again. Because if you look, for example, at someone like Jesse Norman, if you call for Boris Johnson to go at the very beginning of the week, one of his issues is the protocol, but for completely different reasons than, you know, figures on the right of the party. So it's not one that I think will unite the party, but what I think it does do, at least in the very, very short term before you potentially get a backlash from the EU, is... Uh, please the right of your party to a degree um but as ever i think there will always be people who want you to go further so i think the issue is and what has actually worried lots of cabinet ministers um when it comes to what to do on the protocol is there are some who thought that he should trigger article 16 you know last year but if you were to do that would boris johnson have the willpower and the discipline to not u-turn on that at a later date things start to get choppy and i still don't think that um some around him are, are convinced he has and i think that's one of the uh potential places of peril on this um guys i actually poor sam who lent me his laptop desperately needs his laptop back do you mind if i um jump off at this point no that's Um, absolutely fine let me just say 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 something katie thanks very much indeed for that i know you've got to run now so thank you for that last thought on on this and jess also is about to be um evicted from a spot in the cafe in the premier and jess thanks very much indeed for explaining those things to us great thanks bronwyn Tim and Emma, I still want to pick up a few points. I was struck by a column that Ian Martin wrote in the Times today. He's a writer on business and economics who's been broadly a supporter of Brexit um, through much of this. And he was saying this is not the right way at all to get Brexit to work. You want de-escalation. You want lots of small compromises and negotiations with the EU instead of this this big kind of standoff. Tim, do you find that kind of thing persuasive? You were part of many years part of our Brexit team. Yeah, yeah, it feels like ancient history now. But yes, I, I do. I think it feels like it is now a moment to move from the kind of rancour and anger of the second half of Theresa May's premiership and the beginning of Johnson's premiership around Brexit into actually, okay, look, this has happened. We have left the EU. It is now a, a couple of years since we left the EU. Let's actually take stock. Let's work out, okay, are things working? Can we move on? Can we try and build something better, whether that's around the Northern Ireland arrangement or whether it's around things like UK participation in, in science um, collaboration, the Horizon programme, or indeed trade with the EU as a whole? There are, 
you know, it, obviously the EU isn't going anywhere. And now hopefully that the Brexit as a as an event is done, the the process of setting out and maintaining and reinforcing and strengthening the relationship between the UK and and its closest neighbour and its biggest trading partner can actually be done on a more positive tone. Obviously, the kind of caveat to that is, well, how does that play domestically? And as Katie was saying, there's always going to be a constituency in the right of the Conservative Party that enjoys uh, Boris Johnson showing two fingers to Brussels. So so th- those things are intention. So Emma, just take us to wrap this all up. Take us back to the numbers which we were discussing. Does Johnson even get this through Parliament? Well, I'm, I think that's the big question, isn't it? And um, it just shows how difficult it's going to be for Johnson that every time he's trying to get something through the House, we're all going to be asking the question, can he do it? I think the good news for, for Johnson is that as Casey's outlined, you know, the MPs who voted against him aren't in any way unified politically. They're not coming from the same kind of place of political philosophy. So it doesn't follow that everybody who voted um, no confidence in him is going to vote the same way um, on the Northern Ireland bill. Um, you know, in fact, parts of it please lots of the right of his party, some of whom will have voted against him. On the other hand, there have been lots of reports of rebels planning vote strikes, planning to prioritise their opposition to Johnson and abstain on key pieces of legislation. And the NI bill has been mentioned um, to cause him further problems. So in some ways, I, I actually think this vote is going to be quite telling. It's going to tell us lots about whether the kind of assorted rebels coming from all their different political viewpoints in the Conservative Party are going to prioritise their stance on the issues or their desire to obstruct Johnson. Um, won't be long until we find out now. Yeah, well, we, we will indeed. Boris Johnson said this week that nothing and nobody would stop him. But there are lots of things and lots of bodies lined up to obstruct him, as you've just been describing. We will have to see. That is it, though, for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Tim Durrant, Emma Norris, Jess Sargent and Katie Balls. Brilliant that you all could be here this week. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts, including my interview with Wes Streeting, at iTunes, Spotify, or major platforms. Please do leave us a review. Anonymous voting systems allowed here, though discouraged. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest analysis of this momentous week. And for details on a range of great events that we're going to be hosting, including one with Jeremy Hunt soon. Lots to talk about there. Well, we all need a break after this week. The Prime Minister, however, keeps carrying on, for now anyway. Have a good weekend.